0: Hi, listeners of Crime Scenes and Cupcakes. Allow us to introduce ourselves. I'm Beth. And I'm Bailey. And we, we are, are True, true Crime b We do a podcast every week. We release on Fridays. And every week we'll bring to you two different true crime stories. First we'll bring you a disturbing story. And then one that will hopefully uplift your spirits a little bit. We'd love to have you listen to our <laughs> podcast. Yeah, so join us every week on Friday. Find us anywhere you find your podcasts. On Spotify, Apple. Google Podcasts. I don't know anywhere else. (laughs) And also you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at True Crime BNB. Did we even mention that we're mom and daughter? No. (laughs) (laughs) I hope you join our crime family. Bye. Bye. Crime Scene and Cupcakes is an independent podcast created in the Anchor app. Funded mainly through advertising the podcast often has coarse language and disturbing content. Please listen wisely. Hey guys, it's Marianne, dog bomb, baker, true crime podcast maker, and I want to start this podcast off by saying I am so sorry if there were any of my 10s of listeners that I left hanging. I had a cardiac emergency and when that happens, you just have to go. And so if I left any of you hanging and wondering what happens on part two, we're back. And so here we go. So, between 1978 and 1981, Ruth Finley, a quiet Wichita housewife, claimed she was being stalked by an unknown menace. During her ordeal, Ruth had been harassed, kidnapped, and assaulted by an individual who was dubbed the Poet because of the rhyming letters that were sent by this guy. It was during that same time Wichita was dealing with BTK. And we all know BTK had gone in and he had murdered several people in Wichita at this time. And so people had suspected that there might be some link because he had also sent letters to the media, but the truth would be so much more complex. And it led to one of the most baffling and bizarre cases in Wichita history. So. The last episode had ended with Ruth escaping the poet and some suspicion around the police station that she might know more than she's letting on. And I just want to remind people as well that the Stranger Things production company does plan on doing... They've they've done a thing with Netflix and they plan on putting out either... Um, a series or a movie I'm not, or a documentary. I'm not quite sure how they're putting this together and I have read a little bit of what they're doing and it is a little bit more of a Hollywood version of the Ruth Finley story. So I wanted to give you a little bit more of the real version of Ruth Finley's story taken from the Eagle Beacon newspaper and written by Fred Mann. So we had to do quite a bit of research to get Fred Mann and the old archived newspaper, uh, version of what happened during those events. So. So after she had been reported being. stabbed in the town East parking lot back in 1979, she spent nine days in the hospital and the day she's released is when she was no longer alone. She is provided with 24 hour protection. And then that September, Ed comes up with an idea. He contacts the newspaper and says, I want to run an ad in the classified section of the Eagle Beacon. And that ad read, poet, tell me what I owe you, R S F. So the local reporters were like, huh, we know what this is about. That's the poet. And that is how the poet got the moniker, the nickname. And so it started getting passed around and, um, so that Became like a constant communication where BTK had communicated here and there with media um, a little bit more at times. It's amazing how many times the poet communicated through the press. So the poet communicated back with Ed through the classified and said to RSF. The price of my service to stay alive can now be settled at five, but he never really shared any personal information to the poet. It seemed, you know, this is a game. And he also called Ruth the seventh and the hardest to find again, just making people think, is this BTK or not? So then in October, the Eagle Beacon revealed that the poet had been sending the newspaper taunting letters for the past six months. And one of them had said, uh, if any had a brain, no one would have pain. Good or evil, my secret shall not be known. I unnoticed go my way. I may just prosper for one day. And bear with me, the spelling is just absolutely atrocious. Um, The poet wrote in an apparent reference to BTK, he warned, make sure you don't confuse the executioners again. So the paper also printed another composite sketch of the poet resulting in 25 calls from people across Wichita who said they had either seen or they knew the guy or he's a neighbor, I mean, just how it goes is everybody knows somebody who looks like that, so even kind of eclipsing all the news about BTK. So because all the public's outpouring, the police are doubling their efforts. And they're just looking through their files on any kidnappings, anybody's being stabbed, are there any similar cases? They also surrounded Ruth with undercover officers. Whenever she went out, they wired her for sound. I mean, it was just, everybody's working overtime, but it also seemed no matter how much they were working, the poet constantly seemed to be around. Um, one morning Ruth found a letter from the poet on her front porch, and it was interesting because they would always find things, but nobody had heard anything. We always have people around, but nobody seems to hear anything. So with no leads, the police decide to try hypnosis setting up two sessions between Ruth and Dr. Schrag, a Wichita psychologist and police consultant who had worked on the BTK case. So Ruth found the experience of being hypnotized. She actually said it was very calming and there was a few times she became agitated and continued to yell that she wanted out of the car, um, there wasn't really a lot of details about the poet or that they were able to get any things out of it, but Dr. Schrag had stated it's likely that the poet, um, has had psychological treatment or has been in a state institution and that the poet's letters showed signs of high intelligence. So in January of 1980, Ruth's case was taken over by Captain Mike Hill. Uh, cause, uh, Drowatsky was promoted to vice in organized crime. Now Drowatsky and his wife, they had gotten incredibly close with Ruth and Ed over the previous two years. And the couples had frequently gone out together. They've socialized. So they have become incredibly close through this ordeal. And Captain Hill, he had been working on this case for a while, um, because he was actually the department's special investigations. Now, Captain Hill had taken over the department's special investigations section the previous year. And he had been spearheading Ruth's case. He'd also put in long hours on the BTK case. And unlike Drowalski, Hill had no personal connection to the Finleys. So, he was a little suspicious of them. Thought they were a little sus, but after he read Ruth's medical report, he thought, okay, there was no way she could have stabbed herself the way she was stabbed. So... That kind of went by the wayside. So, and he also saw how devoted Ed was to his wife. So he thought, okay, there's no way it's one of them. There's gotta be an outside person. So he went back, nope, that's not it. And then also another weird thing that happened is almost immediately after he takes over the case, the poet writes him a letter. And it begins with the line, there once was a captain who had an asshole for a heart. And you want to talk about pissing off the man in charge, not a good thing. So it just seems like the poet is just not one to give up. And for some reason, still fixated on Ruth Finley and still fixated on ticking off anybody and everybody involved. So Christmas Eve comes and the Finley's phone lines were cut for a second time. And you gotta wonder how, whomever you might think it is or could be, how this is happening with all the people that are around the house watching everything every second. But, so the phone lines are cut, Southwestern Bell comes out and decides to bury the replacement lines underground. Ruth and Ed fitted their back gate with an alarm system, and Captain Hill installs a surveillance camera in their backyard and assigns the detectives to watch the monitors 24 hours a day from the Finley's dining room. And Ruth, she starts to feel guilty that the detectives have drawn such a boring assignment. Although the $1,200 in overtime pay the officers are getting for each weekend does kind of help break it up, but so she keeps making like all these homemade treats for them and then for entertainment purposes only she likes to read them letters of the poet. So the letters that the poet writes she likes to read to people like she did at Christmas the previous year. She reads for the officers to entertain. And I don't know about you, but I don't, if somebody was sending me harassing things, the last thing I would think of is that would be entertainment, but to each their own. On January 25th, 1980, Ruth reports a phone call from the poet at her work. Remember, she is at a security job behind a very strong door with little people where nobody can get to her and the poet calls her and he tells her that he has left her a surprise in her office lobby. When the detectives arrive, they find a 12 inch butcher knife wrapped in a red bandana in the lobby's phone booth. Now two witnesses report that they saw a man at the phone booth who resembled a police sketch of the poet. There was also a poem. Shut your eyes and think of the 12 inch blade. Will you remember the hole it made? Dream of me and obey my commands. Think of me with a knife in my hands. So now the frequency of the poet's letters, they increase even more. So for the following weeks, On February 19th, he sends her a chilling Valentine's day message with a strip of red bandana that was included in the envelope, which is his signature, with a letter and Ed begins to start driving Ruth to and from work every day as a measure of protection and the police are just becoming frustrated. They've investigated over 300 people and they have not found one plausible suspect and they are sick and tired of playing this passive role. They are tired of just waiting for this guy to make the move and they're doing nothing. So they decide they're going to be more active. So they put Ruth in a bulletproof vest and surround her with some female detectives and tell her to start taking her lunch out and see if they can draw him, the poet, to come out and come after Ruth. So they're going to use her as bait. And uh, one of the other detectives, Detective Richard Vinroe, he dresses up as a wino and he starts hanging out on the street corners to see if he can't spot the poet. But it goes nowhere. Well, the local media, they become riveted by Ruth's case. So we've got the local media. We are dealing with BTK. We are dealing with the poet. And as I had mentioned before, we had a random guy who was trying to abduct women, but because we've got this case, it's really taking up more media attention. So the other case didn't get the attention it deserved. Mary Krepper's death. And homicide did not get the attention and it is still unsolved. So we have that going on. And on the 4th of July, the story ends up breaking nationally with a detailed and remarkably accurate story in a publication, the national choir inquirer now. I don't ever think I've ever really heard remarkably accurate and the National Enquirer used in the same sentence, but there you go, folks. And the title of it was, She's a Living Nightmare, the victim of a crazed tormentor. It included an interview with Captain Hill. And apparently Ruth's story just, it didn't need any exaggeration. It didn't need them to make up anything because it was just crazy enough in itself. So then the poet decides to just start messing with Wichita businesses and sends out more than 50 letters in a six-month period. One letter told a local mortuary to contact Ruth for about its services, saying she would be requiring them soon. Letters to the gas and electric company instructing them to turn off the Finley's utilities. The health department was told that Ruth was spreading venereal disease. A construction company was solicited to tear up the Finley's driveway. The DMV was asked to confiscate Ruth's license because she was hazardous and dangerous driving habits. Ruth's bank was ordered to transfer all of her money. And a local florist received a $5 bill with the request that one black flower be sent to Ruth. So just constant craziness that is involving everyone in town. So you now have everyone involved in your business. You're in the paper all the time. You've got every business is knowing everything. You've got police overall. It's just a circus. So still seeking a break in the case, the police are becoming creative and they decide to install a camera in a birdhouse in the Finley's backyard. So two vice and narcotics officers were giving the mind numbing assignment of combing through all the Kansas gas and electric letters to see, and I mean all of them. To see if any of them had handwriting that matched the poet, that took about four days. And then Lieutenant Drowski also sent copies of the poet's letters to Dr. Murray S. Moran, a prominent psycholinguist at Syracuse, Syracuse University who had gained national attention for his work on the Son of Sam case in 1977. So, Dr. Moran wrote a profile stating that the poet was clearly severely psychotic, pathological, schizophrenic, extremely dangerous, a wily and elusive quarry, and a loner. He also said that while the style and pathology of the poet and BTK were similar, he did not believe they were the same person. Yet BTK speculation continued to be fed by the poet's repeated references to a fox he had killed. Because Nancy Joe Fox, BTK's most recent victim, who had been slain in December of 1977, was often referenced in those letters. And to me, that is just one of the most ultimate signs of disrespect in this case. So the poet's harassment is just continuously going on. The poet left an ice pick and a bottle of urine on the Finley's front porch, and then it's followed by a bag of feces, and then some really bizarre things like leaving two Molotov cocktails on the front porch not throwing them, putting them all together, and then just leaving them on the front porch. And then firecrackers and matches in the mailbox. So are these DIY DIY, um, harassment? So you're putting them all together and they're supposed to finish the job for you? I, I don't quite understand the thought process there. So then at Christmas, Ruth and Ed are watching television in their basement And the wreath is hanging on their front door and someone sets it on fire. So despite the hundred hours of diligent police work, surveillance, and all of this going on... They aren't able to see who is dropping these things off at the house, who is setting the wreath on fire, who is cutting things. Nobody has any idea of what's going on and people are starting to ask. Now that it's come around to the spring of 1981, they're going to the police chief. Richard Lemunian and asking, what the hell's going on in Wichita? You have serial killer BTK. You have the poet who is basically harassing this person and doing all these crazy things in your town, writing these letters to the press and you guys are getting nowhere. What the hell is happening in Wichita? And up until that time, Richard LeMunnion had always said, I have full faith in my detectives. They are doing their jobs, let them do their jobs, and he has kept himself removed. But then on Friday, September 4th, 1981, there's an update in the Poet case. A new letter The poet sends a letter to LeMunyon's wife, Sharon. He knew the make of Sharon's car and the path she drove home from work. Angry and offended, LeMunyon decided the time had come to step away from his preferred administrative role And he decided to take a personal interest in the case. So that evening, Lemonyan took the case files. And he spent the weekend poring over every document, every incident, making notes. And by the time he finished, he said that he knew the identity of the poet. So then on Friday, September 11th, LeMunnion called a meeting of 16 of his officers in a windowless basement room at the county courthouse. The civil preparedness room had been specifically designed to keep city officials safe in case of natural disaster. And that's where LeMunnion wanted to have the meeting in order to keep it confidential. Now, LeMunnion is not one for drama or formalities that Takes a seat at the head of the table and he says, The poet is Ruth Finley herself. Before his men could reply, Lemunion began listing his reasons. One. There had never been a single witness to any of Ruth's encounters with the poet, though they all occurred in public places. Two, the Finleys lived on a dead-end street with little traffic, yet none of the neighbors or station police officers ever spotted the poet, nor were there any footprints ever discovered. 3. Detectives found only a single set of footprints, Bruce, in the park where she had supposedly maced her kidnapper. She also said her kidnapper had struck her in the face with concrete, but her face showed no injury. 4. Ruth called Central Investigations Office in the police department when she was stabbed. Why not emergency dispatchers? Why not 911? And she got out of the car to make the call, then back in the car to drive home. How could she do that with a knife in her back? Five, Captain Hill received a letter from the poet as soon as he took over Ruth's case but only Ruth, Ed, and police knew Hill had assumed command. Six, as soon as a recording camera was placed in the birdhouse, a camera of which only the Finleys and the police were aware, the poet stopped appearing in Ruth and Ed's backyard. Seven, the poet's messages to Ed in the Eagle Beacons classified section stopped whenever the Finleys were on vacation and resumed as soon as they returned. Ruth is the only suspect that made any sense. Unless of course it's Ed. But Lemonyan didn't think it was. The detectives of course because of their friendship and their emotional relationships with Ruth. Just couldn't believe it. Ruth was too kind, too gentle, too modest, too normal to suspect such outrageous behavior. The question of whether Ruth was genuinely crazy or just conniving remained to be answered. But during this three-hour meeting, Chief Lemunyan told his officers they would spend the next two weeks performing around the clock surveillance of the Finleys with narcotics and vice officers providing additional support. The officers would work 12-hour shifts, a van situated at the service station in Eastgate Mall Shopping Center. Two blocks from the Finleys' house would serve as a command center. Lemunyan warned his men not to breathe a word of the surveillance to anyone, including their spouses. He said if the media received any tips, he would fire every person in the room. And that had to be incredibly difficult, especially for Lieutenant Joralski, who had become such close friends with Ruth and her husband. Now, after the meeting, Lemunian, for the sake of procedure, again asked Dr. Schrag, if Ruth could be the poet. Absolutely not. He said the medical reports. Absolutely not. There is no way she could be the poet. And his own doctor looked at the stabbing and looked at everything and said, no, there's no way somebody could do this to themselves. But LaMunnion stuck with his belief. Nope, I believe she's a poet. I just, he stuck with it no matter what everyone else was telling him. He was going forward that she had to be the poet. So, they start watching them. And three days later, they get their first break. They see them. Ed is driving her to a mailbox. They have a police helicopter above and they see them mailing letters. And as soon as they mail them, they get the police, they get a squad car to come and they grab those letters and they see that there's some bills, some personal letters, but then they also find some letters from the poet. But at that time it was like, okay, well maybe somebody else had come after that. So they're like okay we we need to make sure we have to make absolutely a hundred percent sure this is her so several days later on saturday september 26th the finleys returned to eastgate mall mailbox at 4:15, and detectives start taking photographs as ruth's arm extends out the passenger window and dropped letters in the slot as soon as Ed drives away, an undercover police car pulls in front of the mailbox to block anyone else from accessing it. They popped the hood and pretended they had engine trouble. And the postal inspectors called and they retrieved the mail and they went to the four letters on top. And on top was a utility company bill, a payment to J.C. Penney's, a personal letter, and a poet letter addressed to Ruth, stating, No dumbass bitch will get the fucking law to get me. When the detectives had finished, the Postal Service resealed the envelopes, delivered the letters on to Ruth and Ed. The two bills were sent to their destinations, where the police then retrieved them in order to establish a chain of evidence. next morning, the Finleys found the poet letter and did their normal, long-established procedure and brought it to the police. And that's when everything went into overdrive. Post office and poured through thousands of envelopes at the other businesses to which the Finley's had mailed their payments, looking for a match with Ruth's handwriting and just looking everywhere they could. They also went to Ruth's boss and started searching through her office at the phone company, but at the same time, trying not to tip their hand to her. So they're going through her office and they find, um, a poet handwriting book, a torn carbon paper, a red bandana. Uh, a big chief tablet paper. I mean, there's just, they find paper, to, uh, torn paper in the trash with the poet's handwriting on it. So they are getting so much evidence. And then on Monday, September 28th, the police began the process of obtaining search warrants for the Finlays house. And although the police were now certain that Ruth was the poet, they really had that, not that perfect evidence to tie her to those letters. The evidence that they felt like they needed to make sure those charges stuck. Then on Wednesday after that, Chief Lemonyan and his wife Sharon returned from a police convention in New Orleans to find another poet letter waiting for Sharon in their mailbox. The letter had been mailed from Southwestern Bell on Friday. One day before police began monitoring the mailbox in the company's lobby, the lower half of the page was torn. The next day, microscopic fracture analysis proved that the bottom of the letter perfectly matched a ripped piece of paper found in Bruce's office trash. Analysis also showed the stamps on the envelopes retrieved from the businesses where Ruth and Ed had sent their bills came from the same cardboard container as a stamp on the poet's recent letter to Ruth. With the investigation complete, the only question that remained was whether Ed Finley had been involved or not. So on Thursday, October 1st at 1.15, Ed comes to the fifth floor of city hall where he was told to pick up another letter from the poet because the police always returned the poet's letter to the Finleys after they were done with it. And they decided it's a good time to talk to Ed. So Ed's a little curious by it, but decides to sit and have a conversation with them. And over this conversation, they tell him that they know who the poet is. And Ed is thrilled. And he says, what the hell? Let's go get him. And they say, let's show you some pictures first. And they show him the pictures they took of him driving his wife to mail some letters at the Eastgate Mall and he's just perplexed because he doesn't understand what is the big deal about us going to go mail our bills what the hell people and that's when they let him know his wife is the poet and you could have knocked him over with a feather So Ed has found out that his wife is the poet, and he has agreed to take a polygraph to rule out the fact that he has had any knowledge or anything to do with it. He takes a polygraph. It shows that he has been 100% truthful, and he has had no knowledge. So then at 5 p.m. that afternoon, Lieutenant Drowski Goes and he meets Ruth at Southwestern Bell at her job and asks her to come to the station to examine some mugshots, which is a ritual she has done many times in the past. And they send Drowatsky because they have a relationship, they have the friendship. They want to keep her in a calm mood because they don't know what she, what is going on with her. Why does this person do what she does? they don't understand how somebody can be capable of the things that she's done. Because remember, this is the eighties. Now, nobody's really quite sure or understands what's going on here. And so detective Hill has her in the room and they have another officer there, another detective there, detective Leon, and they begin asking her just the normal questions about the poet case, which. Ruth, for some reason, either becomes empowered or she just enjoys talking and running people through the case. And so she's going through the case again, just bringing them up to speed and telling them things about it. And that's when Detective Hill interrupts her and tells him he knows everything. And she is denying it. She begins denying it over and over and over and he's lining the truth up in front of her. He lines the pictures. He lines the letters. He lines out all the evidence and they go from playing good cop, bad cop. They go from being, you know, you're ill, you need help to, well, you're just a liar. You're, you're just a horrible. So the narrative goes back and forth and Ruth just, her answers continuously are, I don't know. But she finally does walk through what she did. She tells them about taking the bus to Twin Lakes and leaving her shoes and leaving her sweater. She talks about stabbing herself. She talks about leaving the butcher knife. She talks about these things, but when she's asked why, the answer is, I don't know. Did you mean to hurt yourself as bad as you did? I don't know. So they, they just, the detective becomes so frustrated that he just bangs his head on the table. It's just like, we're not getting anywhere. So Ruth ends with, well, I, I'm, I'm crazy that that's all it is. So they bring in. Dr. Schrag again, the psychologist who had hypnotized her before and they ask her, okay, what would you like to do now? And her answer is, I want to just go home and die and of course, that's not what's going to happen. So at 9 p.m. that night, Ruth was put in a squad car with Ed, her dutiful husband, nestled beside her, and she was taken away to St. Joseph's Hospital and placed under a 24-hour day psychiatric watch. While this is going on, Wichita authorities were deciding whether or not to press charges because the case of the poet had cost police department the enormous sum at again, remember, it's 70s to 80s, $370,000. And while some detectives were sympathetic to Ruth's psychological struggles, others, Chief Lemonian, number one among them, thought she's a criminal and he wanted to punish her. But after reviewing Ruth's psychological report, The Sedgwick County District Attorney announced he would not be pursuing criminal prosecution because her actions as the poet were not malicious. Now, I wanted to address that for just a moment of saying that her actions were not malicious because this went on for years and took up so much of the officer's time and what they could have been working on And it reminds me of the Sherry Papini case. And when another woman had been missing around the same time, when officer's time is distracted that way, we had BTK who was also active in Wichita at that time, we had Mary Krupper who was missing at that time and then found murdered her case is still unsolved we have many cases in Wichita and Sedgwick County so when you get a chance please go to Sedgwick County's unsolved cases at the Sedgwick County Sheriff's Department site but those cases are still unsolved and look at how many were during that period of time when officer resources could have been used but They were dealing with Ruth Finley and the poet. So I have some frustration when it comes to this case. Because she was taking up officer's time. So I I understand that she might have some issues and she has needs therapy. She needs, she has problems. I get that and and I'm not here to judge. And I I do think there are some horrible things, other things going on here, but to say there was no maliciousness at play here, I got to disagree. She underwent Hypnosis. And she said she found the hypnosis calming and she fabricated events while she was under the quote unquote hypnosis. I I do disagree with that point on this case. Because I think that there were several other victims in this case that did not get the attention that they should have gotten. Because officers were, I agree with Police Chief Lemunyan. I think this was a crime. And I think something more should have been done. And I'm going to be really frustrated if the Netflix show shows her as a victim and doesn't show the other victims of this crime. Using the Fox murder in those letters, the way that she did, disgusts me. Because she did that knowingly and used that to promote what she was doing. So, I I have some very personal feelings on this case. And I know we're, we're typically not supposed to and not have that. But as somebody who has a friend who has an unsolved case here in Wichita... And throughout the way, I have had some amazing people who have reached out to me, who have friends and family who have unsolved cases here in Wichita. And it amazes me how many of those cases are from the seventies and eighties. And then you see this case and you see how many officers were devoted to this case, how much money had been used in this case. How can you not be offended if you had somebody you love that was lost during this time period? How can you not see this case as a slap in the face? So I'm sorry if I'm not going to be one of those that talks about this case and back and talks about, Ruth Finley did offer up a public apology and you guys can go out there and read that and look at that. Um, and she did, she, she entered into therapy. Um, she went to see psychoanalysis with Dr. Pickens. And, you know, Dr. Pickens had brought up a lot of trauma that she suffered as a child and, um, she had buried childhood sexual abuse is what Dr. Pickens believes and that the stress of her husband's possible heart attack and the fact that BTK was in Wichita was bringing out emotional stress for her. And that's why she was doing what she was doing. Tack had been real. Now, Chief Lemonyan maintains, he doesn't really quite believe her story. And of course, you know, she's given reason why She can't be... I mean, she put together a crazy story for years. I mean, she maintained these crazy stories. Um, Her husband stuck by her, and he stayed with her, um... She lost some friends through everything, and she eventually felt healed enough to allow her story to be told by a local news station, hoping it would help other survivors, and the outpouring from viewers was overwhelmingly positive, erasing for Ruth the lingering disgrace she felt for her actions as the poet. And after years of struggle, she triumphed over her abuse and achieved the stability she was seeking because her story had a happy ending, although she never wrote poetry again. It's how her story ends. So let's take a moment and let's think about how the story ended or those other victims during that period of time, for those years that officers weren't available during that case, between 1978 and 1981 in Wichita, Kansas, when officers were providing Ruth Finley with 24 hour protection. Because I'm sure Netflix and the stranger things production company is going to make sure it's a happy story. I really, really hope that they touch on the lives lost, the cases that are still unsolved because those are still there. The manpower that was lost. Mary Krepper's case. If you look at the Eagle Beacon, during that time period, her case was a sliver in the newspaper. Her death is a small sliver in the paper. and I know my dog is barking in the background and I should stop talking and wait and re-record but I am so damn angry I don't want to stop because this case consumed the newspaper and Mary Krepper's death got a little small section while a man in a brown maverick had tried to abduct multiple women And there was no further notice in the paper. What the hell is wrong with that? We're going to cover the Mary Krepper case. Here in a couple of days, actually, because I can't hold on to this anchor any longer. I'm just... It's an unsolved case here in Wichita, and as I was reading it, I just felt so much for her and her family. It ripped my heart out, and what amazed me is just reading so much about this case, just, and then reading how it coincided with the Ruth Finley case because the picture, the composite she drew kind of came across pretty close to the composite in the Mary Creper case. Um, there, there were just some similarities. It seemed like Ruth Finley borrowed a lot of her ideas from BTK, from Mary Crepper's murder. I mean, she borrowed from the pain others were feeling. You know, this was also a person who was reading these poems at Christmas and reading these poems as entertainment to the police officers. So... I have my own views and I want all of us to please take a moment visit the unsolved cases and um sorry for getting on my soapbox True crime podcast makers have feelings too and Mine is strongest when it comes to these unsolved cases, families and friends who don't have closure and let me take that back. Closure is something that'll never be achieved. It doesn't matter if the person ever confesses that loved one is never coming back, closure will never be achieved but just some sort of answer. And I think everybody wants to know the why, and even though you'll never really hear the why, at least if you know the who, you can kind of get an idea as to why or the what. I mean, but when you have nothing, your mind, it fills in the spaces and it fills out the who's and it's an ugly place to be and it's an ugly place to go. Thanks for listening guys. We should be back tomorrow with the Mary Krepper case, but I do have another heart test tomorrow morning, so it may not be out till Wednesday. So I would definitely say look for the Mary Krepper case on Wednesday at Crime Scene and Cupcakes. If you haven't already, please follow us on Instagram and Twitter. And I look forward to seeing what you guys thought about my thoughts on the Ruth Finley poet case. See if you agree with me or disagree. I look forward to the debate. Thanks a lot.